Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This, to me, is like the really fascinating material. We don't know what the answer is, but we're looking for patterns. I think we're looking at kind of a type of cosmic alchemy. The story slowly gets Still, a lot of people don't know that this technology actually exists. The possibilities here are pretty mind-boggling. You know, I feel like we were just here in this same room. It I is, was here with you two guys. It is so amazing how quickly a week can fly by. It, it really is. Those of you watching on video will note that the beer bottles have not changed from last yes. week. Yes. Yes. And, and, and we are not fully responsible for those beer <laughs> bottles, we'd like to add. I am. Rob, you are responsible, <laughs> responsible for all of those beer bottles? I, many of them. Many of we'll them. We'll say okay. many of them. <laughs> okay. We, because we got several kinds here. We got some IPA. We got, I don't know, Budweiser, something like that. So, Surfiel, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing pretty good. You've been working hard, man. Yeah, not so much today, so that's good. <laughs> Surfiel is, is building Nashville single-handedly. He is helping to build this city. For our replacements. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, as promised, we have Joshua Cutchin with us. I know I've been teasing that for a few episodes now, but he is finally here. Josh, welcome back to Conspiranormal, man. I think you've been mentioning this book for like about a year, <laughs> ever since you found out I was writing it. Every now and then you're like, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. So hopefully yeah. it, uh, yeah. hopefully it was, hopefully it, uh, it, it, uh, left you satisfied. Yeah, delivered. And, and <laughs> when you sent it to me, I was really, really excited. And I think that uh, it took me, I think I had something else that I needed to read for the show, but it was only a couple of days later that I started on the book. And I have to tell you, it is a great book. I think it's your best so far. 
out of out of the three that you've done, and and that's not to diminish the brimstone deceit or the Trojan feast, but uh, thieves in the night, which oddly enough, oddly sounds like another Christian title. <laughs> Thieves in the night, <laughs> but uh, and 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 these two guys here, they've they have read it as well, and they're they're real yes, impressed sir. with it too. Yeah, it's great, man. I really dug it. Oh, well, thanks, guys. That that means a a whole hell of a lot. You know, anytime you put together a book, there's this period of time where it's finished, but it's not published. And you like spend all this time going over it and just dealing with the the crap of polishing it, and then the stuff that your publisher wants you to do, and the index and building all that. And after after a while, you say to yourself, "Is this is this actually crap? Like, is this actually not worth not worth the paper it's printed on?" So uh, to, I to think hear, every you know, writer that, says that at one time or another. I would suppose. Yeah, at some point you just want to you know drop kick it. I mean, I think that's it's that way with a lot of stuff. I think everybody who records an album is the same way at some point. Oh yeah, I was gonna um, say music is the same way for me. I've I've never finished a song. I eventually just have to stop. Yeah, it's always that old saying: uh, "Art, art, art isn't finished; it, it, it escapes." You know. Right. <laughs> well, when I first got it, I saw that it was like it's what four hundred and sixty something pages long. A brief history, yeah. But <laughs> it's about a hundred. What is it? A hundred pages of footnotes. Oh, it's like a hundred and thirty. I think it's a uh, wow. Yeah, it's it's a chunk of that. So it's. Uh, that's endnotes, um, bibliography, and index. Scholarly. So, so that shows you did your research, sir. Well, you know, it's um, there's. I feel like people compliment me on that, but in some ways, and I don't. I, you know, I you know, I love the paranormal field. I wouldn't be writing this, but in some ways, it's kind of like being the skinniest kid at fat camp. Like I'm just, I'm just doing my due diligence. It's just that a lot yeah. of people don't take the time to, to, to put that sort of effort in. Um, and I think that, you know, hopefully by being a little bit more scholarly and by being a little bit more, uh, you know, honest about where these things come from, uh, we can actually maybe, you know, move these sort of fields forward. Um, Absolutely. I, I, yeah. You know, I, um, I am always, uh, always comforted in some ways by the fact that if I, if I write something that turns out to be patently false, at least I can, it's very clear that it's not me doing that, making that mistake. Like this is where I got it unless it's, you know, a keystroke mistake or something. Um, yeah. Well, what I like about the book and and it's similar to the other two books in that it's comparative because you're basically comparing three different aspects of, of the paranormal, whether that's something that's real or something that is legendary and, in this book, just like the other two, you compare the child abductions in the lines of the fa- the fairy mythology or lore, alien abduction, and there is a, there is some of about Bigfoot in there as well. So, yeah, I can't I can't seem to get away from Bigfoot every time I write a book. There's always got to be <laughs> there's always got to be a Bigfoot here or there. Well, because there's so many similarities that honestly, before I read your first book, I had never even abs- had even thought about uh, fairies in comparison to to alien contact or alien abduction. I had thought about that, but the the whole Bigfoot stuff that was completely new to me. 
you know, it's it's not as strong a correlation um, as the as the alien thing, but there are definitely some some aspects that are so specific you have to sort of wonder, uh, you know, why why that hasn't been addressed more often. I mean, uh, obviously, some people have talked about how certain fairy folk like the Woodwoes or the Green Man of the British Isles, similarly, is you know similar to a to a wild man. But there are things that seem to be fairy imports that get blamed on Bigfoot all the time. Like the the one the most obvious one that keeps on coming up that I think is really curious is the braiding of horses' manes. You know, if that yeah. happens in in uh, you know a stable in Scotland, well, that means that the fairies snuck into your uh, into your stable and, and did that. But if that happens in uh, you know Missouri, uh, it means that the, you know a Sasquatch snuck into your stable and braided hair. Um, so I don't know if that speaks more to the culture or not, but I think it I think it goes to show that a lot of things have this, these sort of earmarks of fairy behavior than people uh, want to realize, especially in this day and age, especially in the new world. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what's the full title of the book? Thieves in the Night, A Brief History of Supernatural Child Abductions. Uh, again, brief is I, – I, I have to sort of wrap my head around brief. I guess brief in the sense means non-comprehensive because it's a big enough topic you can't be comprehensive. But uh, it's – it's uh, I don't think of it as being that brief, <laughs> even with that extra 130 pages um, so taken out. I'll ask the question about you know kind of what gave you the idea to write this book. Like, how did this kind of form in your mind that this was a subject that you wanted to tackle? There are a couple of different things. Um, You know, part of it was, you know, fairies are all over a Trojan feast and um, they aren't, but in just a little bit of uh, the brimstone deceit, even though, you know, I think there's some of that that's very, uh, very relevant to to fairy phenomena. But uh, so that didn't get as much about fairies in the last book. And you know, that's one of the things that I really get for whatever reason, um, for whatever reason I get really excited about. Um, so it's that, um, partially. And I also, you know, I, people see my books, uh, you know, friends of been family and are so are really excited because they want to be sort of creeped out. And then they get, you know, halfway into a book that's talking about the, uh, the chemistry of, of olfaction. <laughs> and they're like, Oh, <laughs> This is this is a little you know this is good but it's not you know going to keep me up at night so I said let's write something a little bit a little bit creepier yeah and I believe that it worked yeah it's it's creepy <laughs> thanks thanks I, I well between that and you know I can't say enough good things about um about Sam Sheeran's cover uh, which is uh, I, I I I've said this and I'm going to keep on repeating it until it becomes a reality um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if my book will stand the test of time like uh, Communion did, but the cover that Sam Sheeran uh, created, both the front and the back cover, um, uh, are worthy of, of of that sort of Communion status in terms of being an iconic image. I mean, it's just it's it's uh, exactly what I I hadn't had in mind, but even better. And uh, the way that you know the, the front cover is this sort of uh, elfin figure is the exact same picture but there's a there's a fairy in its place um really says i mean it's, it's like sort of sort of uh sums up uh my paranormal career in one image and uh i think it really drives the message home and it's just it it, it, it got under my skin the moment i saw it i, I haven't even showed it to it. my nephews are five and my i'm t- keep on telling my sister i'm like don't show don't show my nephews this cover. <laughs> yeah that's probably not a good idea Look what Uncle Josh wrote. Oh my god! Ah! <laughs> well, you know, what's, you know what's even worse is that um, 
What's even worse is that uh, the back of the kid's head looks like one of one of the twins. It's like it's like, it's like a dead <laughs> ringer in terms of hair color and the way he wears his hair and stuff. Oh which no! Is, you know, guess, yeah, it's it was, it's 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 kind of creepy. <laughs> that is creepy. I like how you've got the the picture of the crib at the top of every chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think of exactly what the the, the publishing term for those is, but you know. Um, I think for Trojan Feast it was like the the Horn of Plenty, and then for uh, the the Brimstone Deceit it was a nose. And I think I think Patrick Patrick Weege, my uh, uh, the publisher from Anomalous Books, who has the patience of a saint with me, um, was like, "Let's put a, a like a, he said, what do you say, like a baby bottle nipple or something?" And I'm like, "No, we're not, <laughs> we're not putting a baby bottle nipple at the top of every." Yes. At the top of every, uh, the top of every every picture, um, or every chapter. So yeah, it's it's a, it's a, it's a crib, right? Yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> okay, yep. couldn't remember. I, I, I said a crib, or you know, a a pram, you know, a, a baby carriage, and I think it's uh, I think it's the, the crib is very effective because it's sort of a recurring theme in the book about you know children literally being snatched from their from their resting places, from their cribs and their beds. Um, right, it's, it's a crib with no kid in it. You know, I hadn't thought about that, but that's, yeah. a, that's a good point too. <laughs> so that's that's even that's even more slightly disturbing. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, let's get into some of this stuff in the book, some of this material. Um, it, there's a lot here, and there's I don't think there's any way that we could really cover everything, nor would you want to. So i I want to start out though, talk a little bit about kind of like the precursors to this phenomenon you talk about lilith you talk about molek uh, what what are some of the similarities to them and some of the other material that you write about in the book you know lilith is one of those figures that um that really winds her way through a lot of this different literature um for anyone who doesn't know, Lilith was probably inspired by certain demons like Lamash II in Mesopotamian mythology, um, or Lilitu is another one that gets cited. This sort of bird-footed, lion-headed creature with claws that would uh, often come silently on the wind and darkness and snatch up children. Um, her origins beyond uh, beyond Mesopotamia, I think, have been covered by some other scholars. But you know, from there, it sort of it becomes a bit more diffused as to exactly where this, this concept of this child stealing demoness appears. Um, sometime around, I believe it was the ninth century, the uh, the uh, Hebrew scholars decided to sort of transform Lilith into an, uh, sort of a a extra canonical character um, that uh, was actually uh, Adam's first wife. Um, like Adam, uh, she was also made from dirt and, uh, for, for varying reasons, according to different traditions, she had a falling out with him. Um, in some traditions it was because, uh, she was, uh, too prideful, uh, to actually, uh, remain beneath him during intercourse. Uh, in some other edition, uh, some mm-hmm. other traditions, it was because she just wouldn't obey him. And fr- from that point, she was excommunicated. Adam, uh, uh, Adam had his rib taken and Eve was made, but Lilith still sort of gave them trouble, um, you know, in some traditions, the fairy folk were actually uh, the, the the spawn of Lilith. Um, you know, with Lilith uh, pro- procreated with demons and actually made the fairy folk. But uh, a lot of the things that you will find um, associated with fairy folk and with demons and all these sort of other entities that take take children um, really originate with Lilith. One of the most common things that you find in a lot of uh, 
I find in a lot of magical traditions is that if you know the name of a demon, you can actually bind it. And uh, what the tradition originally began, uh, as it appears to have begun, uh, with these inscribed amulets that were uh, placed on or near a child um, with Lilith's name inscribed upon them, because uh, she had made a she had made a pact with um, I believe it was uh, some it was uh, Elijah um, that if. Uh, if she ever saw or heard her name spoken, she would uh, she would flee from from uh, from the child that she was trying to abduct. Mm-hmm. So you see, sort of shades of that in a lot of other a uh, lot of other uh, traditions. Um, so that's Lilith. Um, you know, similarly at the same time, uh, there was a uh, a an entity uh, named Moloch, uh, which you know a lot of people <laughs> might be might associate with the Bohemian Grove. Uh, <laughs> The Bohemian Grove Owl. I didn't. I didn't go too far down the rabbit hole on Moloch in this book, but uh, apparently it was supposedly a Canaanite god um, at the time of uh, of uh, the, of the time that he sort of emerged on the scene. He was generally re- regarded as being ram-headed, and this particular cult would actually supposedly place uh, children into the idol's arms outstretched over a, over a, a flame. Um, there's been some debate as to whether or not that was an actual sacrifice or sort of more of a, a, a symbolic purification by fire. But uh, for that reason, and I think it's reason good enough, um, he was uh, the, the entity was sort of uh, lumped into this category of, of entities that uh, were were no good and, and wanted to do harm to children. Yeah, the Carthaginians worshipped Moloch as well, which uh, some of that stuff, a lot of people now think that 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 could have just been all bad press because you know the history of being written by the winners. Oh, exactly, exactly. Because first you have the you have the Israelites become the Jews and they write about it, and then the Romans wrote about the Carthaginians too and their strange practices. So how well can those two sources be trusted? But yeah, exactly. still, this idea of even if they weren't killing the child, still the idea of making this kind of symbolic offering of the child to a god is also uh, is also interesting in and of itself. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's interesting too. Like the uh, and that's something that you know you, you it sort of rears its head when you talk about a subject like this. But uh, but. There is an obviously sort of a nefarious human component that uh, is is even more unsettling than than the uh, supposedly supernatural component. Right. I wanted to ask uh, before we get into some of the the classic abductions experiences and stuff, if you could briefly explain who the fairy folk were, and you know we. I think most of us have this conception from pop culture, especially of you know these little like Tinkerbell type uh, you know figures, but. It you know you really it, it it surprised me how really diverse of uh, these enti- these entities were, and so if you could give like a brief synopsis of that and, and where uh, most of this is, uh, where most of this th- these stories come from in the in the world. Yeah, I'd absolutely be happy to. Um, I think the best way to think of what we think of fairies and versus what they actually were, uh, or what they originated as, is is to think of what the jinn have become and what genies are nowadays. You know, we think of genies as being positive, grant, uh, wish-granting, lamp-dwelling entities, but actually, in reality, they were these dark, mysterious, formless sort of spirit beings that could really cause a great deal of worry. Um, similarly, the, our concept of, of fairies is, is very much grounded in this sort 
sort of Victorian reinvention of them as these little tiny winged creatures that flit across the garden. There are some aspects of that that you will find in earlier uh, texts, but uh, in traditions, but the the by and large that that depiction is is more of a sanitization of uh, what the folklore actually says. Um, in reality, fairies could take on many forms, shapes, and sizes. I've often likened it to sort of a, a Pokemon catalog almost. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, not, not just, not just uh, you know, short, although that was one of the hallmarks of fairies. But you would find, uh, you know, elves are, fall into that sort of fairy category, um, as do mermaids, ogres, giants, trolls, goblins. I mean, these are all variations on fairy folk and can sort of fall under that umbrella term of, of fairy folk. Um, exactly what they are is up for debate. Um, you know, uh, Christianity moved into certain areas, most prominently the British Isles, although every indigenous people uh, worldwide has some some degree of fairy lore. Um, but, uh, you know, Christianity moved into the British Isles and uh, sort of saw a lot of these pagan traditions, uh, genus loci, or geni loci, I should say, if I'm using the proper Latin. Um Spirits of the land. So this idea that certain springs have a spirit attached to them, certain uh, you know wooded glades have a certain spirit, an animistic sort of spirit attached to them, and uh, which is probably where they began, either as that or pagan gods. But of course, Christianity wanted to sort of fold them into their worldview, and they became, in a lot of circles, um, uh, the angels that were either uh, too good for hell or too and too bad for heaven, or according to some other traditions, they were actually. The um, angels that were kept, that were actually outside uh, the gates of heaven and hell when uh, the battle over heaven and hell, Lucifer's rebellion, ended. And as those those doors shut, the ones that were stuck in the air became air fairies. The ones that were in the water were are now water fairies. The ones that were in the woods became like woodland fairies. Um, those are. It's it's like it's like a lot of things in the paranormal. There are probably multiple explanations for what for how this originated. I think that uh, the pagan minor pagan deity slash uh, genie loci idea is is certainly uh, possible and and quite quite likely. But there's also a component of it that that gets really difficult to to parse out, which is um this concept, this conflation rather of the, uh, the dead, especially the sacred dead with the fairy folk. Um, you know, uh, it was not uncommon for people encountering the fairy folk, uh, to see, uh, reams of dead people from their village among them. Um, and a lot of fairy, uh, stories that I covered in a Trojan feast, people who were invited to a fairy party would often be warned to not eat or drink the food by someone they recognized who had passed away, a friend or a neighbor, uh, several years earlier. So that you have the, you have the, uh, the dead keeping, Keeping company with the fairy folk, which sort of th- casts another question onto what they are. Um, you know, in some traditions, the, fair- the fairies and the dead were one and the same. Um, there's actually a really uh, poignant moment in uh, an old, very old uh, poem called uh, uh, Elfin's Nurse, um, where when you die, you're greeted with three roads, one to heaven, one to hell, and one to fairyland, um, which might prob- might be the, the most accurate accurate depiction of, uh, of, of, of that sort of relationship. The way that the, the, the Christians explained the fairies is very similar to the way the Muslims explained the jinn. I mean, yeah, that, so I, I mentioned that sort of, uh, that sort of uh, genie, jinn, fairy, you know, 
little Tinkerbell connection uh, deliberately because the, there's a, there's a very strong uh, connection between the two. I mean, uh, if you look at sort of the the habits of fairies, you know, fairies in the British Isles inhabit uh, basically old forts that are unambiguously human forts. Um, Constructed either in the Neolithic era or era or, or the early Christian era, um, and they've just sort of moved. According to tr- tradition, they sort of moved in when the human occupants moved out. Well, in Middle Eastern tradition, these jinn, who were you know, these beings of uh, of uh, smokeless fl- flame, um, were actually d- did similar things amongst ruins in the Middle East. Oh, Similarly, that's... you'll find uh, you know the sort of things that they do: stealing children, even. You know, producing changelings is something that you'll find common to both uh, jinn and fairies. You'll find uh, jinn uh, have a propensity for abducting women for procreative purposes. You'll find that whenever the jinn eat their food, it's actually rubbish. It's dirt and dung and, and you know, old, old, uh, just basically trash, which is something that you find in, in fairy lore as well. So is it – would it be correct to say that fairies and jinn would be the same entity? It's just that it's from – two different cultures expressing it. I mean, I, I think it's pretty, I think it's pretty cut and dry, but I'm aware of the, you know, the, the Sukalos factor where I go, therefore faithful for everything. <laughs> I, mean, you know, I don't want to be that guy because I, I feel like, you know, if you, if you get stuck in a rut of thinking, especially in this field, it's kind of a bad sign. But at the same time, I, I think that it's, it's pretty difficult to deny um, those similarities. I'm not the first person to point that out. Um, there have been some scholars who have actually suggested that the root term for fairies um, actually uh, actually comes from uh, a, a Persian term, uh, fairware. Uh, but I, I don't know if the etymology of that is sound, but uh, that's that's been a suggested thing. So why do we get kind of this corrupted version of fairies now? How did that come to happen? Well, uh, there's not really a cut and dry reason for it. Um, one possible reason is that, uh, fair. And I think that there's some, there's some definite validity to this, um, that fairies represented a lot of psychological, um, fears for individuals. Um, and before anybody gets their, you know, gets upset, I, I, I think there's an objective paranormal reality to these things, but I think also they were used as, you know, scapegoats to explain some very tragic, um, tragic, uh, physical, uh, occurrences. Sure. Um, in, you know, in, in, in the time and setting where these, uh, viewpoints were most often, uh, believed in where, you know, people actually feared for their child being abducted by fairies. Um, Child death was was uh, was was rampant. Um, you know, uh, you had you had congenital birth defects, which uh, I, I actually have dedicated as, as you know, I dedicate an entire chapter in the book to sort of possible things that could uh, that could account for the changeling phenomena in terms of birth defects. Um, yeah, so we'll, we'll I, get to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, so I, I suspect, and this is a couple of other scholars have, have sort of mentioned this as well, but I suspect that as the concern for your child being, you know, kidnapped for, for ransom and, uh, as your child actually dying from some sort of, you know, tragic circumstance of malnourishment or some sort of condition, I suspect that as that anxiety faded with increased medicine, with increased, um, you know, uh, productivity of food yields with the sort of the rise of the middle class in these countries. I suspect that, uh, that meant that people were free to sort of reinvent fairies. Well, they don't need to be these terrifying things that, that are plaguing us, even though some fairies in, you know, 
in in pre-Victorian lore had some had some admirable, helpful even qualities. But it wasn't this idea that we needed to fear for our children being taken by the by the good folk because that's no longer a part of our the, our reality landscape. So that's when they got turned into uh, they got co-opted into this sort of child-friendly um, uh, image. But there was at the same time kind of a movement to kind of collate all this fairy lore in the 19th century. Because you talk about uh, Lady Gregory and Yates and uh, is it Evans Wentz was another oh, yeah, person? Yeah, there, there, there's a couple of them. Um, you know, Patrick Kennedy, Lady Gregory, uh, Lady Wilde, Oscar Wilde's mother. Uh-huh. Um, uh, we're all we're all fairy scholars who definitely did. I mean, our knowledge of uh, of these things would be greatly diminished without these individuals. Evans Wentz came a little bit later in the early 20th century, um, but uh, it, uh, it it it's 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 um there definitely was a sense that a lot of these uh, beliefs were sort of dying, and that's reflected in fairy lore. I mean, it's, the fairy exodus is a common motif, uh, this idea that, the I mean, even some fairy sightings, of which there are actually fairy sightings from, you know, uh, antiquity through today, as people would claim that they saw their fairies, all, the fairies all packed up and leaving in single file, astride tiny little horses, leaving the leaving their fairy forts and their fairy mounds and et cetera. Yeah, um, yeah well, and, and which, which actually, uh, so... So there's this there's this idea that um, as you know and, and the reason for the fairy exodus has been attributed to a lot of things scientism um, you know uh, the rise of of, uh, of uh, the, the Christian faith especially Protestantism but um, this sort of exodus of the fairies uh, and led to one of my favorite quotes by Patrick Harper who's been a big influence on my thought he's an author of Demonic Reality which he says that you know the fairies and lore are always going 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 but never gone because you know they still would show up here and then and people would still be afraid of fairies and there would still be changelings long after the fairies had supposedly left. I mean, Chaucer actually wrote about the exodus of the fairies. And yet to this very day, people say that they see fairies. So Harper said, you know, fairies are always going, 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 but never gone. Similarly, ufologists and new age believers say that aliens are always coming, 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 but never here. And I think <laughs> uh-huh, it's just the most, uh-huh. <laughs> the most elegant, insightful quote about that phenomenon. It, it, it makes me wonder if Tolkien didn't borrow from that tradition yeah. when he wrote yeah. Lord of the Rings, when he talked about the elves leaving Middle Earth. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, if you no. look, if you look through some, I mean, uh, what people don't even realize is that uh, you can find uh, fairy names like uh, Gandalf, Biffer, Bomber, Oin, Gloin. Like these are all these are all actually fairy and dwarf names from existing folklore. And I think a hundred percent he was borrowing that motif of the exodus of the fey folk when he talked about the elves going across the sea and leaving the land of land of men for the land of the West. I think that's, I think that's entirely likely if not, uh, not, uh, if not an open and shut case. Also borrows from Arthurian legend too, with the concept of Avalon and all that as well. The yeah, mythic it, land to the West. Yeah, and, and and uh yeah, exactly. And you know, it's interesting that uh one of the earliest terms for uh Great Britain, Albion, A L B I O N, um, has the sort of root word alb, which mm-hmm. in German, you know, in the Germanic languages is is the word for elf. So there's this deep tie into the into the land um of these of these fairy figures. I mean, honestly, um uh I think that <laughs> I've talked about this on numerous numerous occasions occasions, but uh I feel like we are much more influenced to this day by a lot of fairy lore than we realize. I mean, the term stroke comes from a fairy stroke, the idea that the fairy has, has, uh, 
has has seized upon you and taken you uh, non physically uh, to their land. Um, you know, we talk about the, the the term the color cobalt. Well, cobalt comes from the kobolds, which are a sort of blue shining light seen in, in Germanic mines that would lead miners astray. And it was the specific color mm. of blue, and that's where the the both the mineral and the color got its name. Um, you know, if you see anything that's uh, you know, it, uh, some people have said that. Uh, the term Bogart, you know, don't Bogart that blunt, don't covet whatever you have, um, comes from uh, comes from the term, uh, you know, uh, Bogart, which is actually a type of fairy that was very fond of stealing things, especially children. Similarly, similarly Bogart, Bugbear, Booger, Boogeyman, these all have the same connotations too. And it's it's literally like I've – I should just keep doing compiling the list. I literally see root words here and there now and nowadays, and I'll look them up, and they if – you, if you trace them back far enough, there typically is um, – whenever, whenever I find them, sometimes I'm wrong. But I will often find some sort of focus. Folkloric, uh, uh, fairy sort of element embedded in that, and the way that you know the way that this sort of fairy imagery is used to sell us things, and we have the Starbucks mermaid, the uh, you know chicken of the sea uh, mermaid, we have uh, the green giant. I mean, these are all these are all fairy motifs that are are in our daily lives in in a very prominent way, and we just don't think about them. This no, stuff, we, we th- this yeah, stuff is in yeah. our language, it's in our culture, because we. There is a, that that great kind of northern or western European influence mm-hmm. on the our United States here. So, yeah, um, there's actually a great website that I found, um, and I, I, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna try to flood his uh, flood his his um, his inbox with a bunch of uh, with a bunch of my uh, friends and friends and fans. Um, it, it's this gentleman who. Uh, this gentleman who actually keeps a blog called EnchantedAmerica.wordpress.com, and he's basically just keeping a list of fairy-related attractions in America, but also roadways in areas that have fairy sort of names, uh-huh. um, you know, like Leprechaun Lane or you know Pixie Lane or uh, any of these things. Um, and you know, I think that I think that's I, I think that I want to get I want to sort of get this uh, this. Uh, Grassroots movement of people just emailing him all the time <laughs> because if you look if you look if you look long enough and you know sort of the etymology you'll find a lot of these a lot of these terms uh, everywhere you look. So why would fairies abduct people? What was the purpose? What what was some of the the lore around it? What what was was there ever a reason that was given? Yeah, so there were there are various reasons. Um, some of the more salacious people suggested that it was uh, for blood. You'll find a handful of reports like that. That doesn't really seem to be the case, with the exception of something along the lines of uh, entities like trolls that were known for like taking and eating children. But but in terms of the fairy folk, in a, in a, in a more narrow sense, the most common reasons um, were for. To, to use a ufological term, human genetic material. So uh, the idea was that one of two things would happen. Uh, children would be abducted, although they didn't exclusively abduct children. They abducted, you know, musicians for 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 their music or even people to, as servants. But most commonly, it would be women and children um, for several purposes. For breeding stock was very common because in a lot of traditions, the fairies were a dying race. Um, they they had for whatever reason years of inbreeding or whatever had begun to atrophy and they needed sort of a, a, a shot in the arm so to speak of, of uh, to revitalize their bloodline. Shades of the alien abduction phenomenon too. One hundred percent. And the other idea is that they would actually take a human child 
and replace it with a changeling. And a changeling would be one of several things. Uh, a changeling could be a, a, a chunk of wood known as a stock or a fetch that was cloaked in glamour to appear as a human child that would slowly reveal the fact that it wasn't a human child. Um, a fairy uh, changeling rather could be uh, an elderly uh, fairy man. In which case, the idea was that the fairy man would uh, sort of live in hospice with the people until it died while the the human child would be taken back for breeding stock. Or also quite common was the idea that sickly fairy babes were left behind. Uh, And the idea was that uh, they would actually receive human milk. Um, Fairy food, as I mentioned earlier, was quite often a sham. So it was like – you know, leaves, bugs, worms, sticks, all cloaked with that glamour uh, to appear as an enticing food. And so similarly, fairies didn't have any actual milk to give to give to their children, and they needed something more substantial, human milk. So that would be one reason behind the abduction. Um, it was not uncommon for uh, new, new mothers were often quite tar- quite often targeted for similar reasons to become wet nurses uh, to fairy children, where sometimes they would be taken in return, sometimes they would just be taken and, and uh, stay there with the fairies forever. There was also reasons given as to why a child would be abducted. There were some really strange, rather specific criteria that you had to do to so you didn't have your kid abducted by the fairies. Yeah, they're they're, they're often really silly. I mean, it's and you know that's you're going to find that sort of thing um, anytime in in folklore. Um, you know, gender was a huge factor. Uh, it was often men, it was often young boys uh, who were taken. Um, you know, there are just a handful, only just a tiny handful of cases where where young where uh, female children were taken. Uh, birthdays like Fridays or certain liturgical holidays like Whitsuntide, which is a, a particular holiday around Pentecost. Um, were tended to bring bad luck. Um, you were often vulnerable, most vulnerable during the period between birth and uh, baptism because that's a liminal period. And it's this period, neither one nor the other. It's the reason we have the trickster motif, the, the devil at the crossroads, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in some, some, some cir- circumstances, there was a, a prescribed window when you were most, uh, most vulnerable, six weeks in Germany, 40 days in certain Slavic countries. Um, beauty was a, was a big problem. If you were beautiful, you were more likely to be taken by the fairies. If you were a young adult, uh, a little bit older and you were actually, uh, Intelligent. That was another reason uh, to take to be taken by the fairies. Almost never were older individuals taken by the fairies. Again, something that's reflected in modern ufological lore: the fact that you don't have first-time abductees, you know, showing up at uh, age, you know, forty or fifty. You just don't see that. Yeah, that's very true. And that was something that I, when you pointed that out in the book, that I didn't even think about. I mean, it's it's something that should be obvious, but it's just like you know, that is something that. I didn't have any clue to even think about, but I was like, yeah, you know, he's right. That's, that's the way that it is. <laughs> well, you know what I found really interesting is that, so, so the window for, um, for fairy abduction, uh, at one point was, you know, the sort of newborn to, um, you know, newborn to around, uh, seven years of age was, was really, uh, was really, a time of, of, of uh, danger, you know, it's, or even, you know, perhaps uh, zero to 14, you, you'll find incidences of older children beyond 14. You don't really see many fairies uh, abducting children. Um, and a lot of, if you sort of extrapolate a lot of the, um, Alien literature, there are cases of infant abduction that I found. There are cases of young children being abducted, but mm-hmm. the time for abduction seems to be 7 to 21. So it's this 14-year window that remains consistent across both phenomena, and wouldn't you know it, both in their 
time and place tend to mark the uh, end of childhood and you know emerges into adulthood. Twenty one is kind of an accepted eighteen to twenty one is kind of an accepted age range. Similarly, twelve to fourteen was an accepted age range for someone to be considered an adult uh, right. back in the in, British Isles. Yeah, right. In that time period, you were an adult. In our culture now, twenty one, you are an adult. Right. In that time period, you know, I found stats that was around 500 to 1500 A.D., in case anybody wants a specific time frame. So it's almost as if the phenomena, whatever whatever it is, even if it's, you know, a psychosocial issue, the phenomena has sort of adjusted to our cultural baggage of, you know, when people are when people are going to be adults. Um, Uh Uh-huh. Um, Somebody that I I really admire who was uh, kind enough to write the forward for my first book, Eddie Bullard, um, actually produced this compendium of – uh, alien abductions that to this day hasn't really been matched. I mean, obviously there are more abductions, uh, but but uh, in 1987 he was the first person to really do a survey and analysis of all the existing alien abductions he could put his hands on up until that point, um, and provide tales and sort of trims and some really hard data. It's a great read. Unfortunately, it's out of print. Um, but in 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 this uh, measure of a mystery is what he compiled it. We called it. It's a two volume work. He said that you know. Uh, Abductions and the alien experience seem to be you know, something that the youth encounter, especially teenagers and young adults. And then after your 20s, where there's a little bit of a peak, uh, it's almost never heard of after age 40. In fact, I found a uh, case of a man uh, named uh, – I was I believe it uh, – Alfred Bertu – in 1983, was 77 years old and actually encountered these two beings while fishing who took him to a what he perceived as a landed UFO, and they scanned him and told him he was too old for their purposes, whatever that means. And, you know, similarly, mm-hmm. if you look at uh, excerpt from Evans Wentz's uh, Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries, which is a real foundational text, it can be found freely online if anyone wants to look into that, um, there was, you know, a, a a witness informant, a folklore informant, who said, you know, fairies never they just don't care about them. They only take children, especially young men and women. Let's talk a little bit about the nature of the changelings. We did hit on a little bit about this, but you were talking about in the book some cases where some of these changelings actually survived into adulthood. Yeah, that's a sort of a strange, a strange fact. Um, so most often. Um, changelings would present attributes of um, just being disagreeable, um, just being just being absolutely awful to be around. They would uh, eat more than their fill and never be satisfied. Um, they would sometimes uh, just cry all the time. They would appear listless. They wouldn't really talk. They would just develop at a slow or non-existent uh, rate. Um, so there were, you know, various means by which someone could re- restore their original child um, and sort of exchange back this fairy entity, whatever it was—a fairy child or an old fairy man. But in some cases, uh, none of those prescriptions worked. So people were stuck with uh, with these sort of uh, outcasts of society and their families. And oftentimes, they tended to live really short. Lives. Um, uh, if if they lived to be twenty or or thirty, uh, that was a real outlier. They tended to to die sometime in their teens or their twenties. Um, again, they would never really uh, exhibit any sort of development. They would often just sort of uh, make odd sounds. They wouldn't exhibit any sort of linguistic skills. Um, at the same time, you had people who were sort of viewed 
could have been changelings, right? So they would sort of make it make it through life with a, with enough social skills, and they would sort of be suspected as being changelings because they were left handed, or they had you know sallow skin, or they were uh-huh. or they were too small too small built. So obviously, you have some conflation there, um, you know, of this idea of finding people who are uh, not like the in group and sort of singling them out as being uh, as being the other. Interestingly enough, I discovered this. The term "oaf" is actually uh, a reference to changelings. That the idea that you were an oaf, you were an elf, you were an elf—that's that's where the etymology of that term comes from. So you were an, you were an elf child if someone called mm-hmm. you an oaf. I mean, you were a dullard. Um, and you know, there are a couple of examples though of you know these changelings actually survived into adulthood. Um, you know, from this historical record, um, there was a uh, Ellis Bach of, uh, I believe, it was Scotland. Um, who uh, passed away sometime in the late 1800s. And even though he was uh, reported to have legs that were so short that he uh, barely could you know, lift his body off the ground, um, he actually was really helpful with navigating uh, the, the rocky countryside when herding his father's livestock. He actually was sort of helpful. Um, similarly, there was a, a, a real roustabout named uh, Little Hobby of the Castleton, it was a uh, this 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 uh, being this, this person in southern Scotland um, who was uh, really fond of uh, fighting. He had really short legs, but he was really fond of fighting, and he actually challenged a neighbor who was six foot three. And the neighbor actually fled. I don't know if this is folklore or not. Um, one of the more recent uh, one of the more recent cases was this character um, from uh, from uh, Brittany, France, which is another big. Uh, big um, pocket of Celtic culture, there was a a gentleman who went by the name of the little Corrigan, who was apparently this like real hellion who would just like give his mother all sorts of grief, uh, but never developed to a stature older than a 10 year old child and was just really thick and sort of uh, hunchbacked and was, was just basically a hellraiser. Uh, and according to Evans Wentz, as of like 1911, he was still alive at 70 years old, which is just absolutely unheard of for surviving changelings. And supposedly there was there was at least one photograph of this character, um, but you know none of them have ever really surfaced in the intervening years. But uh, yeah, well, it's you interesting love to get your hands on that picture. I know the, the thing is, I don't even know if we'd uh, I don't even know if we'd we'd recognize that photo if we found it. You know. Yeah. Um, it would probably just look like, oh, let's get, you know, it's just somebody. It would probably be akin to the freak show photos that you find nowadays. Well, that brings me to <clears throat> what you were talking about earlier. Because when I read that part, I, I thought to myself, how do we know that this is, that these are not disabled children? That were just, because this lore was so pervasive, people just made an excuse and said that this was a changeling. And you do a good job in the book of pointing out that, hey, this is the other side mm-hmm. of this phenomenon that it could have been used to explain disability. Yeah, explain and also, unfortunately enough, exploit. Um, yeah. You know, I, 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 I feel the same way about changelings as I do about UFOs. I think a vast majority are not anomalous. Um, you know, I think I personally think that the lion's share of UFOs are a hodgepodge collection of um, of misidentification, misunderstood natural phenomena, secret test military aircraft, um, and then I think there's a small percentage that might be any combination of and including psi phenomena, um, uh, spirits phenomena, and uh, even you know 
heaven forbid for Joshua Cutchin to say this, but extraterrestrial visitation, like I think that's probably happened at least at some point. Um, so similarly, I think that a vast majority of changelings were not any sort of exchanged fairy entity, um, but were actually people misidentifying um, existing illnesses. Um, and there have been numerous, uh, numerous very compelling reasons for people to suspect this. And I would say probably about two or three dozen um, different uh, conditions that have emerged as contenders for what people were experiencing or trying to describe when they had these children. Uh, you'll hear people suggest cystic fibrosis, Down syndrome, certain metabolic disorders, rickets, um, Hunter syndrome, Hurler syndrome, homocystinuria. Um, some of the, some of them are actually more compelling than others. Um, I tried to sort of outline a couple that were more com- compelling, like spina bifida, cerebral palsy, progeria, uh, which is one of the really compelling ones because if you look at progeria, people are short statured, they have wrinkled skin. It was often a, 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 a sign of the changeling is that they would be have a wrinkled face because oftentimes they were you know a fairy child. Um, they would have delayed developments in their in their mouth. Their heads would be large. They'd have high pitched voices. Um, they would uh, rarely survive past age 13. I mean, these are all things that you see in a majority of the changing literature. But uh, the only problem with progeria as an explanation is that, you know, you only have 100 patients alive um, today. So it's not an especially common uh, affliction. Yeah. How, um, common, how common would it have been then when we had a low, much lower population? Right. And of course, again, I'm, I'm not ruling out, you know, sort of a, a uh, constellation of different ailments being thrown under the under the changeling umbrella i think that's p- possible and even likely but uh one of the ones that people like to talk about nowadays is the fact that perhaps um autism was uh was a reason for for you know for uh, for for these changelings that was actually people were misdiagnosing I mean, for example if you have regressive autism that might actually occur after signs of normal development which would you know suggest um well, it, it, it fits in line with the narrative of a healthy child replaced with a with a child who's who's isn't developing naturally. Um, you know, similarly, um, some of the inability to uh, read uh, affection affection cues might result in children uh, who are who are, who are on the autism spectrum screaming. Um, you know, certain uh, you know stereotypy, the repetitive speech patterns that you assume with autism might account for changelings who would sing song, which is another thing that you find in some of these changeling uh, some of these changeling. Um, stories. Um, you know, again, I mentioned that mostly boys are, uh, affect where taken, uh, in changing lore, uh, mostly boys are affected by autism, like one in 42 versus one in, I believe 190 or so. Right. Um, so there, there are a lot of, again, it's probably a combination of a lot of different things. And on top of this, you have the reality of, you know, the way that a lot of these changelings were, um, uh, some of the means we can get into this in a little bit more detail later if you'd like, but the means to rid yourself of a changeling were to beat it or to um, to literally bake it over a fire or stuff in an oven. Um, it's really really grotesque that's, and gruesome stuff. It's brutal, man. Yeah, that's yeah. Just... It's, and there, there well, there's plenty. When we can circle back around to this. Well, we will circle back around to this here in a second. Um, but. Uh, you know, it, it, it's too tidy of a scenario where you have a family who has a child who has some sort of cancel birth who is disabled, who isn't going to be able to contribute, but is another mouth to feed um, and saying, well, let's do this horrible means to put out the fairy when actually you're just trying to kill the child to get rid of it. And to sort of drive this home, this is a stat that I just I keep coming back to because it is so incredibly sobering. There is a, uh, a lady who did a a um, a survey and analysis 
of of uh, infanticide, child death, child murder specifically in Ireland. And during a 50-year period from 1850 to 1900, only looking at cases where children who are less than three years old were killed, she found 4,645 cases of child murder in that 50-year period. Whoa. And this is this is from a this is from an island that's about the size of Indiana. <laughs> in a 50-year period, only children less than three years old. So if you had children who were, you know, three and a half years old, they weren't included in this survey and analysis. It's also so, an island that suffered from a good deal of, of poverty as well, though. Po- poverty and famines, too, yeah. So I mean, <laughs> right. So I, I'd be curious hand, to yeah. know what it because 1850, <clears throat> the potato famine is what, 1844? I'd be curious to know what it would have been before that, like right in the middle of the famine. It was probably even worse. And those are only ones that were documented, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in and, and, and newspapers and such. Um, you know, if, if anyone is interested in looking into this book, as dark a topic as it might be, um, it, it really is a very interesting read. Um, the, the, the author's name is, um, is uh, Farrell. Uh, Elaine Farrell, and the book is A Most Diabolical Deed, Infanticide in Irish uh, Society. Um, so I, I think that Light with— reading. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> um, but, but I think with that reality and these scenarios in play, I think that it's pretty—well, and also the fantastic nature of changeling stories, you know, this idea that these fairies come in and whisk your child away in, in, in the night. I think we have to admit that a majority of these probably are— um, probably are— representative of of birth defects and, and of, of, of conditions that you know tragically we would realize and in some cases even be able to uh, to um, to alleviate with today's modern medicine oh yeah absolutely uh, well, let's talk about some of those techniques to get rid of a changeling because some of this stuff is actually kind of bizarre and funny at the same time <laughs> yeah so um there were, uh, I mean, numerous reasons, and, and again, I, I tried to be as, as comprehensive as you can, but a lot of it's just not, you know, a lot of it's difficult to difficult to um, to pin down and difficult to to, to collate. But uh, the idea, the basic idea behind a lot of these, were that um, you would want to make the fairy folk either um, feel in fear for the one of their kind that they left behind or for the, for their, for their well-being, or you would want the changeling itself to fear for its own uh, well-being. Some of these methods, um, were quite, um, you know, were, were quite benign. Um, you know, you would have, uh, people who would recite a certain prayer or people who would, uh, burn an effigy of a child or, um, you know, in some instances, which are a little bit more folkloric, people actually took the fight to fairyland and to actually retrieve their child. Um, sometimes there were just magical rituals that were employed. Um, the really dark ones are just basically any and all sort of abuse. And the, this ranged from um, this ranged from simply beating a child um, to leaving them uh, alone or abandoned at liminal locations like entryways, crossroads, where certain rivers met, where certain provinces met. Um, sometimes it involved dunking the child over and over again uh, in, you know, in the name of the Trinity in a in a well. Um, sort of like a the idea that oh, I didn't baptize it, so now I've got to sort of give this this quasi baptism. Um, there's a lot of association again, this fairy association with the dead. Sometimes children would be left at overnight in open graves. Um, similarly, if there was a a changeling from God. the gin. 
the, changing from the jinn, those in the Middle East would actually leave the child in a cemetery for a while. So another another jinn theory changing uh, parallel set there. Um, you know, fire was was effective. I mentioned the fact that they would, you know, not only would they heat a child in a pot, um, sometimes they would toss a child into a burning fire in a chimney, and supposedly the, the, the changeling would whisk itself in some folks' folk tales. It would whisk itself up the chimney, and the child would appear on the door, their, their human child would appear on the doorstep. Um, you know, it was, it was uncommon to, uh, to, to throw your the face of a child, um, to stab them, to underfeed them, to pinch them, to uh, to to, bre- to uh, brand them with with burning metal implements. I mean, this this absolutely Jesus. horrific stuff. Uh, put, put put foxglove under their tongue. Foxglove is you know it is a deter. It's a or digitalis rather. Um, you know, an extreme poison. Uh, so you, you have, it's just, so it's, it, it reminds you a lot of, and in the end, it reminds you a lot of the, the witch trials where, Oh, you died. So therefore you weren't a witch. Congratulations. You know? well, <laughs> right. 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 Even if you did survive, it's, it's, um, even if you did survive, you, you, well, you wouldn't survive, but yeah, even if you weren't a changeling, you would still, you would still die. It so, was a changeling uh, child anyway. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and there are cases. I mean, there are cases of um, human children being killed. Um, there was uh, a, a lady in County Tipperary, a grandmother, who actually uh, dunked her 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 grandson uh, and held them under the water in the river, and was actually uh, found uh, not guilty of murder because her her defense was that she was trying. She thought it was a changeling that she was trying to to get rid of. How much of this could be due to some kind of mental illness on the parents' part? That's an interesting point. You know, you um, hear about some of this uh, this material now, where these where women will will kill their children. You know, yeah. uh, you hear about a lot about this in the news. So they will just they will do something just absolutely awful to to kill their children. In uh, the early 20th century, a French psychiatrist by the name of Capgras. Um, actually discovered a condition where people uh, suddenly feel that either one of their limbs or more commonly friend ones or friends or loved ones are actually replaced with imposters that they look identical, but they're not really their friends or loved mm-hmm. ones. Um, it's not an extremely common uh, disorder. Um, but, you know, there was a case in the seventies where a, a gentleman suffered some brain trauma and thought that his Wife and all five childrens were actually these sort of uh, changeling duplicates. So it's 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 entirely possible. It's almost like paranoid uh, schizophrenia, right? Again, yeah. again, we're dealing with this with this um, with this constellation of things. I think where sometimes it was something like Capgras, sometimes it was these uh, these medical conditions, and sometimes it was something genuinely anomalous. But yeah, that's that's definitely a reality, and that doesn't get talked about nearly enough. We often assume that um, the parents were we're reacting to something uh, that was legitimate and physical, but it's just as likely that the parents could, could have lost their minds as well. And then the way kids are too, you got to think some, sometimes some children might've began to identify as a changeling. If that's all they were told they were, you know, it's like a kid being told he's bad, you know, like he's, I'm bad now, you know, maybe, maybe after a while, some of these kids, you know, responded to it and actually would identify as that just confirming it. 
That's an excellent point. And I think that the data backs that up. I mean, you'll find in numerous uh, newspaper articles of the time and uh, numerous folklore that it would actually be, you know, an insult to a child. Be like, you would call them a little fairy or a little changeling, you know, just sort of the way, you know, your mom or dad might say, I don't know what happened to you. You know, it's this exact same thing. If a child was misbehaving, you'd be like, oh, you little fairy, get out of here. Um, so, yeah, I can totally see them, see some children really embracing that and maybe taking it a little bit too far. That kind of has a different connotation now, but. Uh. <laughs> It does. It does. It does. Uh, and, and, you know, there's an entire probably rabbit hole that we could go down on the origin of that term. One that I'm not prepared to talk about, but uh, yeah. there's a great there's a great blog um, that I cite probably, I think, about 20 times in the book. Um, it's run by a scholar of folklore who goes by the nom de plume, uh, Dr. Beachcoming. Are you familiar with Beachcoming's Bizarre History blog? No. Oh, OK. Post haste. Get yourself over there. Um, it's a lot of it's a lot of historical fairy lore. It's a lot of uh, looking at how the folklore evolved and how certain terms, how sort, certain pop culture fairy things became involved. But also, he'll talk about just general odd folklore, uh, like the origin of pubs in Great Britain named the Child and the Eagle, and whether or not that's connected to instances of children actually being abducted by eagles. It's one of the best alternative uh, alternativia blogs that I can find. I'm not going to say 14 because he's quite scholarly about it, but it's, it's an absolutely fascinating read. And it's a, there are, there's about a decade or more of blog posts on there that will just take you down this most interesting, most fascinating rabbit hole. Beach Cummings, uh, bizarre history blog. You can just do a, put it on the Google machine and find out where it is. Put it on the Google's. There, there was this one technique that was used that had something to do with the eggshells. Yes, yeah, so that was that's an odd one, and no one really knows where it came from. But you'll find it across numerous cultures. Um, was is this concept of the brewery of eggshells? Um, so, um, well, it, it, it sort of requires a bit of explanation. The, the concept was that most often in these stories, a fairy man, an elderly fairy man was the changeling. So the, the, the human baby had been exchanged with an old fairy man. And the idea was to do something so preposterous that the fairy would actually remark that in all its long time on the earth, um, <laughs> it had never seen something so, uh, so ridiculous. Um, I believe one of the most common ones that one of the common phrases that you would hear was, you know, um, and you know, an acorn before the oak I knew, an egg before a hen. But I never heard of an eggshell brew, a dinner for harvest men. They would always speak in the sort of rhymy verse about their ancient age. So sometimes I would say, I've seen you know this particular lake dry, but I never saw this, or I saw this forest grow up from tiny acorns, but I never saw this. Um, you know, the acorn before the ache I had seen, the wilderness before the lawn, but never did I see anything like this. And oftentimes this nonsensical behavior would be a brewery of eggshells. You'd actually take eggshells and you would put some sort of food stuff that's variable, sometimes beer or ale or porridge or or dough or, you know, something along those lines. And you would put the eggshells on or, or you know, near the fire in an effort to, like, act, simulate boiling the material in the eggshells. Um, similarly, in, depending on culture, sometimes you might find acorn shells substituted, or in, in uh, coastal communities, uh, you know, uh, shellfish shells would be used to sort of boil. But always, always, time and again, this sort of nonsensical act of preparing food in these tiny little um, uh, unorthodox vessels would mm -hmm. always entitle, entice the fairy to say something. 
uh, to remark of the fact that uh, even though it's seen basically the entire world grow up around it, sometimes they even explicitly say, I've been alive for 1,500 years. Even though that, <laughs> even though those things, they'd never seen somebody brew anything in an eggshell. Um, and it's what's interesting is that again, there's there doesn't seem to be a real um, origin for this myth. I mean, is 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 the eggshell symbolic of fertility? Is it is it symbolic of the uh, the folklore around chickens that you know something? Chickens often are impervious to witchcraft, but in you know people aren't even aware of why that is. Some people have speculated because an egg is sealed, it implies that whatever is inside is safe, and you know it's it's safe from uh, influence. Nobody really knows where it comes from, but you see the hallmarks of this tale across a lot of other different cultures. You'll find it in Iceland. It was actually common to fashion an enormous spoon out of a bunch of different handles that stretch all the way up the chimney and the changeling and <laughs> yeah and the cha- the changeling in Iceland would say you know well I'm old enough as you know as as anyone on the on the planet and I'm a father of 18 elves but never have I seen <laughs> such a long spoon and then you say oh you're going to changeling in uh, some certain parts of Scandinavia I have never seen that before <laughs> 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 um you know, it, 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 even in uh, certain uh, cultures in the Arctic Circle, there were uh, fairies who would uh, exchange uh, old men, their old men, for human children. And the method to repel them was to make sort of a stone soup. If any of you are familiar with that sort of old folk tale about, you know, uh, uh, the idea of just putting uh, a stone in a pot and boiling it, the changeling in this case would say, "Well, I've you know been alive longer than any man, but I've never seen um, I've never seen stone soup." So after all this, after a, the change, I've been around longer than any man, and I've never seen some stone soup. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that your uh, Arctic Circle changeling sounds like a 1930s gangster. <laughs> I never seen that. Uh, well, <laughs> but, but as but I was reading that, Josh, the thought oh. in my mind was, if that happened at least once, and of course. When that happens, the the fairy changeling is revealed, and he says, oh, shit, and he leaves. So you would think at one time he would go to his fairy buddies and say, hey, man, you know, they're brewing eggshells. Don't fall for Don't that trick. <laughs> Don't be surprised. You know, they might do something crazy. Yeah, exactly. Um uh, you, you've inspired me. If we ever do an audio book, I've got a lot of options for uh, some voice acting here. I might just have to call you up. <laughs> call you up. And I've never seen something so strange. <laughs> so yeah, sometimes, sometimes oh, this reveal, sometimes this was just a means of confirming the changeling. Sometimes the changeling yeah. would be surprised at being called out and would flee on their own. But more often than not, <laughs> then you could call the changeling out. You could say, oh, I'm going to go burn your fairy fort or burn your fairy mound, or I'm going to, I'm going to press iron to you, or, you know, I'm going to throw you in the fire. And the changeling would disappear and the human child would reappear in its place. Yeah. Um, the iron yeah. was the next thing I wanted to get to. So Ooh. this idea that iron somehow would reveal the changeling or could be used as a weapon against the fey folk. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a very common, I mean, you could, you could, I mean, you couldn't, I'm sure somebody has, or somebody will write an entire book about just the influence of, or the relationship between iron and the paranormal. Um, you know, in, in certain parts of China, it's held that uh, you, if you nailed an iron nail into a tree that wards off demons, uh, you'll find this tradition that iron is a is a, a repellent of the supernatural uh, in places like India. But it's also very common in, in fairy lore, this idea that even a simple horseshoe across uh, above a doorway might actually repel the fairies as well. Um, in fact, it was probably the most – the second most uh, – the second most – 
uh, foolproof means of keeping a fairy away from your child after something like baptism. Um, sometimes they were made into amulets. Sometimes you would literally just stick any any iron implement into a child's crib, you know, no matter what it is. An old key, a nail, mm-hmm. um, more dramatically, again, the darkness of these tales. Um Sticking a knife in a child's bed. Something I always like to. <laughs> something I always like to talk to is is um. This, there's this one. There's this one story that I cannot get over, and I I, I mentioned it a lot because um, it's just an example of extremely poor judgment. But there was a child, um, or an informant in Yorkshire, uh, who said that children should be kept safe by dangling a carving knife just above the head of a child, like pointing pointing at the child's face. Because because um, why not? <laughs> Yeah, um, changelings, man, you got to watch yeah, out change, for them. Yeah, that's that's the real. Well, yeah, I, but you know, interestingly enough, I think this sort of a robust uh, superstition, superstition set really shows how scared people were of this this phenomena happening. Yeah. I mean, the fact that there's this this much robust uh, uh, folklore surrounding it says that people took this very seriously. Um, you know, sometimes you you could uh, put a nails or blades into the head of a, into the headboard of a child if you had a sword that sort of was double trouble because the uh, sword could make not only a makeshift cross with that t-shape but it was also made of iron often um the reason for this is also similarly to uh similarly to the brew of eggshells method exactly why this works is up for debate uh and some some cultures it was it's suggested that it's actually the sharpness of the blade that that wants that keeps uh that keeps the fairy folk away because they realize that if they get cut they won't bleed and that will remind them of the fact that they aren't human and therefore they can't be saved by christ yeah i know that's a real stretch i think but um in, in other cases um just the act of having iron sort of represents the fact that mankind has dominion over Nature, the fact that we can actually uh-huh. bend nature to our will. Um, yeah. In other cases, you know, iron is a symbol of human civilization, whereas fairy folk, the fairy, are more of the earth. So, they, it, again, th- that idea that we are more technologically advanced and that's sort of a reminder. And I think that's probably what it is. Also, I mean, you've got to look at at uh, how how much power iron gave early man. You know, in a lot of cases, it would arrive from the heavens in the form of meteoric iron, which was especially strong. And uh, it really allowed humankind to change our environment. You know, it gave us an incredible amount of power. I wonder how much the fairy lore having to do with this whole iron concept, whether this would have something to do with that fairies are like this genetic memory of whatever tribe they pushed out using iron weapons against, say, something like bronze. Well, you know, again, I think this is sort of a recurring theme that we keep on uh, coming back to um, in in this podcast is this idea that, that explanations can be many things at once. And even yeah. Evans Wentz suggested or was suspected, I should say, that there was uh, a supernatural component to the fairy folk, something genuinely anomalous, but also that uh, – that there was at least in some cases a genetic memory going on of an indigenous people. So, in, in specifically, if you look at the British Isles, uh, the uh, the concept, which is was more popular than it is nowadays, but the the concept was very popular that the um, the fairy folk were actually a uh, a memory. So, whenever you know the uh, 
the Romans came into Britain, uh, they were the, the Picts, the indigenous people, were driven underground, often depicted as being shorter. Underground is where the fairy folk live. Um, and this idea that they sort of live this hard scrabble existence where sometimes they would need to switch out their sick children with the healthy invaders' children to boost mm. up their bloodline. And yes, that their tools were inferior to the tools of the invading army. army. And you can see how this motif would sort of repeat itself throughout a lot of conquering land. And perhaps that really is where some of these method, where some of these, uh, where some of these legends come from. Again, if you think though about the sort of confl- conflation of fairies with the dead, perhaps both are true. Perhaps it is, you know, the restless spirits of the indigenous people who are who are actually exacting supernatural revenge in these cases. I think again that they can have multiple explanations, or even explanations agreeing with each other or adding to each other in these cases. Is that? So that's something that I've often wondered about, um, because and it also lends itself to some of the the Bigfoot mythology as well, because you know there is that idea that Bigfoot is a what a Neanderthal, some yeah, some, or, yeah, or, some or older former, some yeah. other form of human that got pushed out to to the periphery. And the, and we see that in the Bigfoot lore, where they will kidnap children to improve their gene pool, and kidnap women. I mean, mm-hmm. there 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 is no shortage of cases. I mean, it's not extremely robust like the abduction experience, but there is no shortage of cases where uh, where Sasquatch abduct women for procreative purposes, and they'll actually you know there's stories of Native American women who give birth to these hybrid, sickly-looking, hairy, half-human, half-monkey-man things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, going, kill me! Kill me! <laughs> <laughs> the first words are, kill me! <laughs> yeah, exactly. What were your child's first words? <laughs> ah, kill me! <laughs> kill me! <laughs> um, my, my, my child's first words were, I am an abomination! <laughs> My child's first words are, I've lived for 1,500 years and I've never seen something so strange. I, yeah. I don't recall it in the book, but can you elaborate <laughs> on some of the, the lore of of these uh, fairy folk speaking in rhymes and riddles? Well, I mean, most prominently, I mean, uh, sort of uh, that oftentimes it would be in the uh, – the the reveal of the brewery of eggshells. So you know the acorn before uh, the what was it the acorn before the oak I knew, but this is neither silly nor true. Or no, acorn before before oak I knew, and egg before a hen. But I never heard an eggshell brew a dinner for harvest men. In this particular case, um, you know, it was uh, there was a bunch of porridge set out um, in eggshells, and when asked what was what was being done, the changeling was told that. Uh, the mother was preparing a dinner for all the men to, who came in from the harvest. Um, oh, I, I need to find some more. I know that there are a couple more in here. It, again, it's one of those things that you see uh, see a little bit more in um, in actual fairy tales than, uh, yeah, than, yeah. Than, than, than than the fairy lore. But you do see it crop up from time time and again. Interesting, like a little leprechaun pimp. Exactly. Rudy Roy Moore (laughs) as a leprechaun. (laughs) There's others as well. There's other beings. Um, 
that commit child abduction and some from around the world. Witches is one of them. And there's some other traditions. Uh, Southeast Asia has some strange ones. Let's talk a little bit about those. Yeah. So specifically Southeast Asia or. Are any of them, but well, I mean, Southeast it's, Asia, it's, especially cause that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, there's a pretty, there's a pretty <laughs> long, there's a pretty long chapter that talks yeah. about a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, witches are sort of a cross-cultural one that you find, but you find this the same sort of things that sound like the fairies that like to take children, often leaving something in their place. You'll find that um, in Papua New Guinea. You'll find it in Australia. You know, the Australian Aborigines have uh, this belief in the Pimera Kotwethe, um, which are these uh, short little beings that are often se- can't be seen by by adults, but are only seen by children and and dogs, um, and are often fond of carrying off women and children, and sometimes uh, steal infants because. They they can't have any of their own. Um, you know, Hawaii has um, has uh, certain entities as well associated with it. Southeast Asia, you know, you've got you know what is it over twenty or thirty thousand islands, um, you know, in Southeast Asia, and it's just really dense cultural uh, cultural lore. Um, some of my favorite ones. I mean, there are some ones that are directly uh, variations on fairy folk, but some of my favorite ones are the the really creepy ones are these uh, disembodied heads with entrails dangling behind them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> one is called the uh, Penanglan from uh, Malaysia, and one is called the uh, Krasu, which is the sort of Thai analog for it. Um, in both cases, the head of a female woman who's trailing her her bowels behind her, um, mm, who has nice. a who has a uh, who has a Pinchon for preying on expected mothers and digging into their bodies with her proboscis tongue and taking out the fetus. Um, oh. You know, so, yeah, that's that's specifically the crossu. The the penangalan um, waits for pregnant women and new mothers and sort of like skulks around the house during childbirth and squeezes up through the cracks and laps up the afterbirth and scoops up the newborns. Um, you know, if, if one of these entities were to touch a mother, they would often contract some sort of uh, consumptive disease, which, interestingly enough, in you know the British Isles, uh, a lot of consumptive diseases were not seen as actual diseases, but actually as people being taken into fairyland. The act mm-hmm. of, of, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bit confusing because a lot of times being taken or being away or being with the fairies were just euphemisms for death, and they were often seen as one and the same. So those were two of those. Uh, so those were two of those. Those Thai, uh, those I'm uh, sorry, Southeast Asian uh, entities. But you'll also find stuff like the uh, the Pontianak, which is this Indonesian Malaysian sort of vampire creature, um, who was you know either depending on depending on the particular tradition, it was a woman who. Uh, who had uh, died in childbirth or had uh, even, I think, in, I think maybe even had had aborted a child. Um, but she actually uh, preferred, she actually enjoyed ripping open women's uh, pregnant women's stomachs with her fingernails and taking them with her. Um, uh, I don't know if that was, maybe that was the ass wine. I think that's the ass wine. Sorry. Um, <laughs> although I think they both take them directly from the fetus. Anyway, you'll see a lot of, you'll see a lot of similar, um, similar entities across a lot of these, um, Southeast Asian countries. The one with the head detached, um, going around with the spinal cord with like a nervous system dangling out from it. That's, it's pretty gruesome. That's, 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 that's particularly gruesome. Yeah. And of course <laughs> on a more, on a more mundane level, there are these entities known as the, the Bunyan, um, which, uh, actually have caused, have been known to cause a, a series of different, uh, waves of children who had disappeared, actually disappearances of children that have been attributed to the Bunyan, which are these, uh, sort of, uh, strange 
beings who live in the forest sound a lot like fairies. Uh, and in the, in the 80s in particular, were blamed with the disappearances of several children. Um, there was a young girl who was, uh, and I believe it was 82, um, who was washing clothes by the river and uh, went disappearing, who disappeared for two days. And she finally showed back up and said, oh, I've been, I've been okay. And she said, I was hanging out with this, I was hanging out with this young child who was about my age and she looked really odd. And we went to this, she took me on a walk, sort of asked me if I wanted to go on a walk and took me to this really strange space that was really beautiful. And it only took a couple of minutes. And of course, in this case, it was, you know, two days later, which has shades of everything from fey folk abductions to UFO abductions to missing 411 all wrapped up. Um, similarly, like, you know, like UFOs and like, rather, I should say alien abductions, these Bunyan were also accused uh, during the same time period of taking children directly from the womb. Um, there was one woman who, uh, so there was this this man with a hat who approached her in the middle of the night mm-hmm. and lifted up her mosquito net and, uh, the next day, she was bleeding, and uh, her child had died in her womb. Similarly, you'll have confirmed pregnancies in a lot of these cases uh, completely disappear without any any uh, any evidence of there ever being a pregnancy. After someone might see uh, these strange figures in their bedroom at night, and of course, in you know, in uh, Malaysian culture, this is the the boonie, the boonian. Again, there's there's the parallel to alien abduction with the pregnancies, and the aliens come and take the baby and. Yeah, and, and I realized this the other yeah. night. Um, I realized this the other night uh, that I actually talked about a case during this particular Boonian uh, wave in a Trojan feast where there was this guard who disappeared, had some missing time, disappeared, came back and said that he was taken to this really strange place by these strange creatures and they gave him all this delicious food. And when he puked, he puked up worms and leaves and, and, and sticks. So again, that, that same motif of this, this sort of woodland trash being cloaked to appear delicious, it shows its head in the Bunyan lore as well. So all these things, there's so much to compare between these things. And I, I don't know if that means that Aliens or fairies or fairies or aliens or, you know, what I actually suspect that both are describing the same thing but are failing at really accurately describing all of them. Um, you know, I don't know what that means, but it, it's worth it's worth mentioning that there are all these connections. In alien abduction lore, and are there such things as changelings? Because you normally don't think about it, but you do raise some pretty good points about yes and no there could be (laughs) such a thing i mean yeah yes and no i mean so the 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 similarities between changelings and the ufo hybrid babies that you find a lot of this lore those similarities those visual similarities have been noted ad nauseum um similarly um you know the, the aspects of the baby presentation itself um also seem to to have some hallmarks of uh, of alien alien uh, and uh, also have to seem to have some similarities uh, to to changing lore. The fact that the children the child appears listless until the mother holds it, or the fact that you know it looks like it has this like tiny little wizened face. Um, again, all these are are attributes that you find with changelings, and I list a lot of those. But as far as actual changelings, as far as actual substitutions of a child with something foreign, um, you don't find that unless you consider some stories about you know things like clones out there. Mm-hmm. One of the most interesting stories that I think is really representative of uh, of how the changeling phenomena 
manifests itself in ufology is the story of Ted Rice, who was a subject studied at length by Carla Turner, who claimed that on an overcast, cloudy day in his childhood, and uh, something we haven't really addressed, but uh, fairies were often most active on stormy days, on rainy days. They would often travel in whirlwinds. So on this overcast, rainy day, he was taken into the sky and his soul was put into a different body, and then he was returned to Earth by this by this giant storm. Well, the storm is an abducting force, and this idea of you know there being a new interfered with child placed back in the care of its parents could I mean easily describe the same scenario as a, as a, as a changeling uh, in in fairy lore. So that's the sort of way that you have to look at it. Is you have to look for the way that the motifs rather than the explicit narrative right. manifests itself in ufology. Right, and you draw some similarities as well to the indigo children, that whole idea. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you know. It, the indigo children are almost sort of a clever inversion of the changeling motif. So, you know, in in the changeling stories, it's this horrible child from the other world that uh, is making your life a living hell. And in the indigo ch- stories, it's this wonderful child from the other world who is just so absolutely, uh, absolutely charming. Um, you know, it's interesting that some of the some of the disposition of these indigo children sort of mirrors uh, changeling phenomena. Um, for example, uh, indigo children, uh, you know, seem to be very uh, seem to be very uh, cantankerous. Sometimes they can be because they are so precocious. They often uh, struggle with um, struggle with authority um, and uh, you know, sort of. Uh, Restrictive things like the the uh, the education system. Um, they're often musically adept, but don't tend to show that in public. Uh, similarly, you'll find a lot of stories of changelings who reveal their true attributes. They'll actually have a great love, like all fairy folk, of playing music, but they won't do it until no one's looking. Well, similarly, some people claim that uh, indigo children make their best music outside the structure of school, only doing it at home. Um, and in, an, in another in another sense, you know, these indigo children, these star children. Either one or both of their parents in a lot of these narratives are um, are aliens. They're they're not human, and in so, and again we can see sort of an inversion of the changeling narrative in the sense that the adults are sort of made into the changelings in this sense. Um, the the it's almost like um, you're viewing the changeling scenario from the other side. So the, the, uh, the humans are the ones who are restraining the wonderful child, as opposed to the fairies are the ones who are restraining the wonderful child. You know, oftentimes, um, according to at least Bud Hopkins, uh, the parents of indigo and star children, it's another common term, um, would be perceived to be sort of an imposter, a sort of false mother. Um, so again, this, you've got this idea of this, this displacement of children into a different setting an exchange of children with the other world that, if you look at it the right way, is very indicative and very sort of a, a modern retelling of the of the changing phenomena. It's a real reversal. Exactly, and yeah. I think if you look at whatever this is that's going on, and again, I think there's something objectively going on. Um, it it's very pliable, and it knows how to adapt to our own expectations as a culture. What is the link to the missing four one one material? That you discovered. Um, I said this on a couple of occasions, and I stand by it, and I'm completely aware of the irony of it, being someone who loves fairy lore. Um, the missing 411 thing is 
a paranormal Rorschach test. So whatever you're really interested in, that's what you're going to think is happening. So if yeah. you're like, if you're like, like, man, I'm really into that dog man, man. It's dog man taking in people. <laughs> that's that's what you're gonna that's what you're gonna see, you know. And you know, you gotta watch you, out for dog man. You gotta watch that there dog man. Hey that man, dog, dog man. Dog man's no joke. Have you ever been to Northern Michigan? Those woods are uh, scary. All right. Oh yeah, no, I, 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 it's all I've dog man. To, I'm not saying it's dog man, but it's, it's but dog it's dog man. man. Uh, um. <laughs> Next time on Ancient Dogmen. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's interesting. So so yes, yeah, so if you think it's if you think it's Dogman, it's all going to be Dogman. If you think it's Bigfoot, it's all going to be Bigfoot. If you're into true crime, it's all going to be a serial killer. If you're into UFOs, it's all going to be alien abduction. I realize the fact that I'm into fairy fa- the fairy folk. It, it 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 highlights the irony of me saying that I think that the fairy folk are the only thing that really check off all the boxes. But you know, there's always a shortcoming whenever you look at one of those explanations. I don't think Bigfoot can control the weather, and inclement weather is something that you find in these cases. I don't think that uh, aliens would have a real reason for abducting from uh, berry bushes, but that's something that you see in a lot of these cases. Um, I don't think a true a, a, a serial killer would would uh, put people in some of the nonsensical positions or, or, um, or even operate obviously over such an extended period of time. But all these things are accounted for in the existing fairy literature. I mean, as I mentioned, fairies were most active on days of inclement weather. That's a recurring theme in missing 411 literature. Um, one of the most perilous things that you could do um, in, in the miss in the, uh, in fairy lore was to can you hold, can you hold on one second. Sure. Is this all going to be in the video? It's going to. Oh yeah, I didn't think about that. I hope he isn't. uh, I hope he isn't uh, puking like like twigs and berries and worms. Hey, okay, I'm back. I'm back. Okay, good. All right, all right. Wrong wrong end. I I was. I was. uh, I was a little worried about you. We thought. Worms and berries. Worms were and twigs were coming out or something. The fairies didn't offer you that taco salad, did they? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> Joshua Cutchin, have some taco salad. We made it Hang for on. you. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's a Mexican fairy. It's a chinique. <laughs> it's a what? What is a Mexican fairy called? <laughs> a a chinique. Okay. A C H A N E Q U E. Chinique. Um. Okay, I'll. But you will find all these things explained for and accounted for in the existing fairy lore. Um, you know, it's been established when mentioned earlier that fairies were most active during moments of inclement weather and took people away in storms. Well, that's a major data point in the David Pilatus research. Um, one of the most perilous things that you could do would be to uh, go berry picking. And you'll find that in a lot of fairy lore. In fact, uh, there's an entire essay dedicated to it in one of one of the books that I have here on my shelf about just in uh, the New World in Canada, how a lot of uh, children were supposedly taken away by fairies. These are these are modern accounts of children who say that they were taken by fairies or children who um, return in a trance. Another data point that David Politis researched: these people who, when they are recovered, return in a trance. Um, you'll find abductions from bodies of water and or uh, boulders. Both are extremely common uh, uh, places of fairy habitation uh, to the, to the extent that, you know, it's often talked about how in Iceland, uh, people will actually, uh, divert roads around boulders and boulder fields to avoid disturbing the, the elves of Iceland. Um, 
and you will, you know, you'll find uh, sort of the some a lot of the age demographics tend to line up. Um, one of the interesting things that I've always found is the fact that there's always this uh, this disrobing in a lot of David Pilatus's cases, where people have taken off their clothes or, or you know taken off their clothes and stacked them neatly beside them. Um, that was a very, very common means of getting yourself out of fairyland was to invert a piece of clothing, which again mm. we see parallels in, in the UFO research where abductees will be returned in their with their pajamas turned inside out. I found a really compelling. Uh, article from a folklorist talking about the Minahune, the, the Hawaiian fairy folk, and the the uh, proper act of uh, humili- uh, of humbling yourself before them to prevent them from interfering with you was to take off your clothes and lie face down in the sand, um, which is exact an exact description of the way that a lot of these people are found in Pilatus' uh, cases. Um, you know the inability for dogs to uh, for dogs to hunt. Well, dogs were often afraid of fairy folk, um, so it's 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 it checks off the most boxes of the of answering the missing four one one phenomena of anything uh, that people have have, have uh, proposed. And again, I think that I think that uh, the missing four one one in the cities is at best something different, if not. Uh, sort of a wild goose chase. So I'm not including that in this particular explanation. But again, um, I'm not saying that it's fairies. I'm saying that... That it's fairies. Well, no, no. I'm not saying that it's... (laughs) I'm not saying that Missing 411 is fairies. I'm saying that whatever people were attributing to fairies is describing whatever is happening to people in Missing 411. Right, Right. yeah. So... But yes, it is fairies. (laughs) (laughs) And um, that's to explain the fact that you are not saying that what is going on, you're not saying aliens are fairies. You're not saying Bigfoot are fairies. You're not saying fairies are fairies. You're saying that we're dealing with something that is external to us, that is an intelligence that poses as different beings at different times. Yeah, that's that's my that's my that's my own personal thesis. To yeah. be more even more conservative, though, I guess what I'm saying is that people were using fairy lore to describe missing four one one before David Politis. Yeah, and now we are approaching it from a different angle and and not looking at any of that fairy lore, regardless of whether that means that there's actually some sort of earth elemental spirit aspect to it. What what people people were describing disappearances with fairy lore back then that map exactly onto the missing four one one parameters. I had a thought as I was – when I finished your book, uh, something that I've thought about in the last couple of days uh, about, you know, that, that whole Slender Man case of the two girls that were going to go see Slender Man. Yes. There's a very fairy-like aspect to that and that that has to do with with children as well. You know, they're going to see – to live with Slender Man in the woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of, as much, as horrifying as the subject is about child abduction, in a lot of these fairy lore cases, children were treated really rather well. Which you also see, coincidentally, in a lot of alien abduction cases. Children are uh, rarely, if ever, physically, uh, rarely, if ever, restrained um, aboard craft and alien abduction experiences, but children were taken to fairyland were actually well-treated. They were given toys to play with. They were uh, given food. Again, this idea of toys to play with rears its head in in ufological lore. Um, But this idea that children might actually want to go to fairyland is obviously sort of mirrored in that Slender Man um, 
in the Slender Man uh, phenomena and the, the ability of whatever this is, assuming that there is some sort of egregore tulpa esque sort of reality to Slender Man, which is I'm definitely on the fence at best about um, the idea that there's some sort of seductive force that's wanting to lure children into its fold is motivically right on point with a lot of this older, older uh, mythology. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Yeah, it is. It is an incredible book. As I said before, Josh, um, well, I, I really, I, like I said, I really appreciate that. Yeah, um, we have just scratched the surface about what, and and what you conclude in the end, I'm going to leave that for people to read the book. But that was pretty incredible and a pretty incredible conclusion. Well, you know, thanks. I think I think people might have a, a little bit of a taste of it with that sort of why can't you know? I think of the the gif of the little girl. Why can't it be both? <laughs> so that's sort of a a uh, yeah, that's sort of a, a, a thumbnail sketch of it. But thank you, thank you, um, Adam. I was I because of the subject matter. Um, a lot of this book deals with some really sensitive issues and, uh, I was walking on eggshells a little bit with some of it. Um, so to know that that actually kind of came off okay in a, in a halfway, um, acceptable way means, means a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Very, not, not just very informative, but, uh, very comprehensive, very well written, very well researched. It was just all around. It was good stuff, man. Well, thanks, Rob. I really, I really appreciate it. So, I have a theory to run by you. Uh-oh. Shoot, the connection between the fairies and alien abduction. We always talk about you talked about the fairies leaving. My idea is that the fairies are actually leaving Earth because we've messed it up beyond repair, and they're going somewhere else. So that explains the aliens. That's the case. Abduct me. Wrong. No, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm being really facetious when I say that. No, I mean, but honestly, I mean, that's the sort of idea that I kind of, I kind of halfway wish is is true. This idea Uh that it's this weird hybrid sort of like space ghost sort of thing, like you know the 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 uh, the the sort of powers these spirits are leaving our realm and and returning in some sort of flesh and blood like just something really weird and out there i think is probably i suspect is probably closer to the truth than either fairy lore or you know the eth Mm -hmm. absolutely well josh where can people get the book uh, I think Amazon finally has everything sorted out now. For a while, um, because of the of the demand, there was there were a bunch of third party sellers getting um, selling marking up the book for like fifty percent, just ridiculous stuff. So, um, what I'm saying is, find the lowest price on Amazon that you can and buy it because that money sure as hell ain't going to me. So don't put it <laughs> don't put it in somebody <laughs> else's pocket, and also save some money because it's you know no one should have to pay two hundred and eighty dollars. <laughs> For the what? book or already, yeah. somebody's what? doing that. Somebody yeah. did that already. It's got to be an algorithm oh, or something. My God. Um, the more common one was somebody was selling it for thirty six. I think it. I think it's. I think it's being sold for like twenty three or twenty four dollars on Amazon. Barnes and Noble has none of these issues. Um, but if you must go with Amazon, um, you know, just just do a search for it and look for the cheapest one. Um, more information about it um, is uh, I keep on my website, which is joshuacutchin.com. Uh, links to all my interviews there. Um, 
uh, ebook formats, and it's usually there are multiple, as with my other books, um, should be coming out in about two or three weeks. And uh, if you stay tuned to my webpage and or Twitter account and or Facebook author page, which I just set up a couple of weeks ago, um, I'll definitely make sure everybody's aware of that uh, when it happens. Um, and uh, I think there might be, I mean, the last two books have had a hardcover edition uh, that. I can't imagine that not happening with this one since it seems to be uh, a little bit more – it seems to have a little bit more moment, more momentum out of the gate than the, than the last two did. And where can people contact you? Uh, through my website at joshuaketchen.com. And, uh, oh, I would be remiss uh, if I didn't say that I uh, am part of that wonderful podcasting network uh, the the uh, shared uh, the the uh, where did the road go cinematic universe <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, shared universe here um, so you can hear me on, on uh, where did the road go hopefully a little bit more regularly now that uh, this book is off my plate well excellent thank you so much Josh thanks man well, thank you guys it was an absolute pleasure um, we got to do the in person hang soon <laughs> yeah absolutely. <laughs> absolutely we will we will uh, stay on the line for us Josh we're going to close out this section. And we'll be right back to close out on Conspiranormal. Did you guys think about that? That was uh, that was quite an interview with uh, with our good friend Josh Cutchin. Oh, it's always a good time with Josh. Yeah, um, and this was a little, a little deviation from from the last two, which were a, a bit more, um, you know, lighthearted. It's it's similar in in that it, it compares, you know, um, a lot of old stories with um, newer concepts and stuff, but definitely much darker, much deeper, much. Uh, Mm-hmm. I don't know. Very interesting stuff. Yeah, I'm like I said before. I'm quite impressed with the book. Uh, what do you think, Sergio? You get yeah, any, was... any kind of like thoughts on the book? Because you read. Yeah, I you, read it. You're at, able to read it, and Rob read most of it. So I read it at night while I was on vacation, while I was staying at a campground in the woods. Oh man, perfect. I perfect. read it and, until I passed out every night. So. It was. It definitely had an effect on me. And uh, when I had to get up in the middle of the night and walk to the uh, walk to the bathroom, it uh, I think it definitely affected me. But yeah, it was. <laughs> oh my god! It was very, very good. Um, and that that interview was really great. And he gives a good synopsis of it for for anyone who wants to check it out. Um, pretty interesting um to compare the all these different phenomenon and really go into more depth on the fairy lore which is a lot more complex than the uh kind of pop culture mm-hmm. uh images that we that most of us have than 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 just tinkerbell right right um any thoughts on it rob or the stuff that you've read or um I mean, it's. I've always wanted to get more into like the the fae folk fairy lore stuff, anyways. And his, his books are great, 
very comprehensive kind of broad view of of all of it. You know, all three of his books that I, that I've read. Absolutely. Um, you know, and and it's funny because when the first time you told me we were going to have him on, it was for it was um, Trojan Feast. The Trojan Feast, mm-hmm. yeah. And like, you know, you briefly explained it to me, and I totally misunderstood. I thought we were going to talk to somebody about like the dietary habits of like cryptozoological creatures or something. I was like, okay, this whatever. But then it was it was uh, just bizarre in a completely incredible, wonderful kind of way. You know, the the connections that he's he's kind of come up with and he he exposes. Yeah, the first time I heard Josh was on Graylian Report. And it it instantly grabbed me as pretty fascinating. I had the same kind of thought was like how how interesting could this possibly be? But it's just right. I was like, we're gonna talk about food. Okay. Yeah, it's the comparativeness of it. Yeah, it's right. the comparing these these three different phenomenon and saying how are they similar? How are they different? And you find out that they're much more similar than they are different. He's, so yeah, he's real special at look, looking at things outside of the box, um, you know, as opposed to most researchers and finding connections and doing the comparative thing. It's he's yep. real unique. Oh, the whole time that I've been sitting here, I've been looking at the Happy St. Patty's Day, <laughs> thinking, about, thinking about leprechauns, realizing that this is still up. I mean, in eight months it'll be St. Patty's Day again, so well, we can just leave that up there. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't uh, I don't clean up out here as often as I should. There was uh, last year we had the St. Patty's Day party and there was still like a, a shamrock balloon hanging up there last Christmas. And that <laughs> really, that would, that would really depress me. <laughs> and then also the Bigfoot collar is right above it. Right. Well, that's just a practical tool. Then Yoda yeah. Yoda looks kind of uh, elven. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We got like a we got like a fairy shrine over here. I mean, we don't even know. Uh, we did do thanks to Surfiel. We did do a s- small Patreon, very juicy. Uh, yeah, very short but sweet Patreon little Patreon episode with Josh. We talked about Thunderbirds, yeah, a little yeah. bit, and we also talked about a interesting dream that Josh had. And to hear that, you have to go to our Patreon. And where can people join to become patrons? That would be at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. we got uh, lots of little bonus episodes up there. Um, if you want to support the show, it's a great way to do it. You can subscribe. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't want a monthly subscription and you just want to do a one-time donation, you can do that through our website at conspiranormal.com. And there's plenty of other ways you can contribute to the show and help support us with uh, five-star reviews, um, sharing, you know, Likes on Facebook, all that stuff. We we absolutely love all you guys. So thank you for all that. And if you don't want to hear advertisements for razors or or mattresses, please donate to the show through through Patreon or through the website. Although if you want to advertise, please contact <laughs> yeah. us. Yeah, about something if it's cool, you know, uh, something that's a that's a cool product, something fairy or fairy folk related. Yeah, I just thought of something that little. Uh, your little tool up there that's like iron probably well yeah that's my fairy stick yeah so and we got uh, we didn't even and know we sword. had a shrine the sword, <laughs> the, sword. The, the sword we didn't know we had a shrine to, 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 to we could prevent fairy the fairy defenses yeah we, we can lure them in and then we can we can kill a bunch of fairies fairies stealing my baby that's right 
That's right. Next time, guys, we have Richie Blackett coming on. He was someone I heard on Melissa Martell's show. He's out of the UK. And we're going to talk about a book that he is working on right now called Of Wolf and Man. And I know that Heather, if she's listening, gets a big kick out of the way I say wolf. So that's next time. Uh, we're going to be doing that over at Surfiel's place because Rob is going to be getting lost in the woods in Michigan. Wait, what's that? What, with Dogman. What's what's that? Uh, oh, it's about ancient uh, wolf cults. All right, berserkers and stuff. Yeah, cool. Oh, yeah, hell, and lycanthropy like and all kinds of stuff like that. But you're gonna see the real thing. You're gonna be up there That's with true. Dogman <laughs> dog in, in the woods. I'll, I'll send you, I'll send in my Dogman report. You can splice it in. Yeah, and the the Wendigo up there yeah. and stuff too. So, all right, guys. Well, we're gonna close it here. Um, we'll miss you next week, Rob. Oh, as we. We we always miss you, man. You're, you're the <laughs> integral part of this show. So, guys, join us next week for Conspiranormal. Watch out for changelings. Taco salad. being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 dollars more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.